You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. If the name Nicholas Tulp rings a bell for you, it's probably because of a painting. In 1628, Tulp had been appointed Prolector Anatomi, Lecturer of Anatomy, at the Amsterdam Guild of Surgeons, and one of the responsibilities of that office was to give an annual anatomy lesson to the Amsterdam City Council and various guild leaders and prominent citizens. These dissection demonstrations performed upon recently executed criminals were fancy social occasions, akin to a night at the opera. But they were also fundraisers, with the admittance fee going to the general fund of the city council for holding their meetings, dinners, and the like. The city council, by the way, was required to attend and had to pay their own way in. But other than that, the thing was nearly pure profit. The space was donated, the body was donated, in a sense, and the prolector Anatomi received no extra pay for the show. The only real expense was that every five years or so, the Surgeons Guild would commission a painting to be made of the event, and anyone who wanted to be included in said painting, guild leaders, councilmen, even the anatomist himself, had to pay part of the commission. The more you kicked in, the more prominent your figure would be in the painting. The only one who got featured gratis, of course, was the dead man. And on January 31st, 1632, that dead man was Adrian Adrianzoon, otherwise known as Eris Kint or Eris the Kid, a repeat offender who this time around had beaten a gentleman to steal his cloak. In the painting, Eris's ashen face is obscured by shadow, which might have been a sort of field leveling for his being included in the work sans payment. But more likely it was symbolic, the umbra mortis, or shadow of death. Because that was the sort of thing that the artist, a 26-year-old recent Amsterdam transplant, named Rembrandt von Rijn, liked to paint. The anatomy lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp was Rembrandt's first major commission. It was, at the time, his largest canvas. It was the first time he signed a piece with his first name, and it's generally considered his first masterpiece. So, yeah, if the name Nicholas Tulp seems familiar to you, that is probably why. But during his lifetime, Nicholas Tulp was famous mostly for his book, Published nine years after Rembrandt's painting in 1641, Observations Medici was an international sensation. In it, Tulp detailed 164 notable cases from his medical practice and his life, and his write-ups are illustrative of who he was as a person. 
Nicholas Tulp was born Klaus Pieterzoon, the son of a well-to-do merchant. He changed his first name to Nicholas because it was more formal and respectable, but he changed his last name for more clever reason. When he opened his medical practice in 1617, he quickly realized that many of his patients were unable to read, rendering the sign outside his office useless. So he replaced it with a picture of a tulip and renamed himself Dr. Tulp, the Dutch word for the flower, so that those seeking his care would know where to find it. Similarly, while his casebook was officially named Observations Medici, it became known by a more colloquial title, The Book of Monsters. It wasn't a bland recitation of surgical details, but a book full of stories that caught the imaginations of readers. There was the story of Jean de Dut, a blacksmith who, fearing the barbarism of the local barber surgeons of Amsterdam, opted to remove his own bladder stone with a sharp knife. Almost miraculously, de Dut both survived the procedure and succeeded, producing a stone roughly the size and shape of a large chicken egg, which he later had set in gold. And then there were the animals. During Tulp's career, the Dutch East India Company practically ruled the world. With a monopoly on Euro-Asian trade, the company waged war, negotiated treaties, established colonies, struck its own currency, and even managed its own court of law. And in addition to sending spices, coffee, silk, porcelain, rice, and other sundries back home, they also sent strange beasts, many of which were given to Tulp for observation and dissection. So the Book of Monsters didn't just contain some of the earliest and most accurate descriptions of human medical conditions like migraines, cholera, breast cancer, hydrocephalus, and conjoined twins. It also contained descriptions and illustrations of all kinds of new creatures, like the Unicornus marinum, sea unicorn, which we now call the narwhal. There's the Lumbricus lattice, or jointed worm. Most interesting of all, there's a description and illustration, the first description and illustration, of a certain beast which had been brought by traders back to Amsterdam as a gift to Prince Frederick Henry, which Tulp names Satyrus Indicus. It was as tall as a three-year-old boy and as thick as a six-year-old. Its body was neither fat nor lean, but squarish. It was both very dexterous and very agile. Its limbs were so drawn up and its muscles so huge that it had the ability to do whatever it dared. Its front side was bald all over, but its back was hairy and covered with black fur. The face was human-like, but its nose was flat and turned up like a wrinkled, toothless old woman. What Prince Henry had, and Dr. Tulp had described, was the first known ape to ever make it to Europe alive, and the first to be described and drawn with any level of detail. Way back around 500 BC, a Carthaginian explorer named Hanno the Navigator had made a trip around the northwest side of Africa and had chanced upon what his local guides called a group of gorillae. Whether they were, in fact, gorillas is up for debate. It's possible they were actually chimpanzees or even a tribe of indigenous humans. Hanno's account leaves the matter in doubt. 
He describes them as a, quote, rude description of people. Was that just Iron Age racism? Or did Hanno think that these primates, whether gorilla or chimp, really were a kind of people? Regardless, his men hunted them down, killed and skinned three of them, and their pelts were brought back to Carthage and displayed at the Temple of Tanit. Since Hanno, rumors of pygmies, satyrs, and other hairy forest or jungle dwelling near humans in Africa and Asia regularly made it back to the people in Europe. Pliny the Elder spent two chapters talking about how apes or satyrs were virtually identical to humans anatomically, but for their hair and nails, some of which he thought were cloven like a goat's. But it's Pliny's description of their behavior that really stands out. They cared for their young. They were curious and intelligent. When hunters wanted to capture them, Pliny said, they would use shoe-like snares, which the apes were eager to put on their feet. Some of them, Pliny recounts, were even known to play chess. In 1591, Filippo Pigafetta published a report of the Kingdom of Congo in which he wrote about a group of apes, uh, probably chimps, who huddled along the banks of the Congo River, delightedly imitating the travelers as they passed by. Around the same time, an English sailor named Andrew Battelle was captured by the Portuguese while exploring Rio de Janeiro in Brazil and transported to a Portuguese colony in Angola and kept prisoner there for the better part of 20 years. In his diary, Battelle described a colony of gigantic, mute, hairy people called Pongos who would come down into the village at night to gather around campfires and who, he said, buried their dead. While taken as fantastical or even mythical, it seems likely that the Pongo Battelle encountered were, in fact, gorillas. In 1631, Jacobus Bontius, a physician working with the Dutch East India Company, published Historiae Naturalis et Medicae Indiae Orientalis, which, along with the first illustrations of the Javanese rhinoceros and the dodo bird, also included the first description and drawing of what Bontius says the natives of Borneo called Orang Oteng, or Man of the Woods. According to Bontius, the Orang Otang was even more impressive than Pliny's apes. It could talk, but pretended it could not, quote, lest he be compelled to labor. The illustration in Bontius's Historiae Naturalis is even more startling. It pictures what is, for all intents and purposes, a human woman, fully upright, covered in fur, and with hair like a lion's mane. When Nicholas Talp came to view Prince Henry's simian gift, he must have already read Bontius because he refers to the creature as an orang otang too, although to modern readers it's pretty clearly a chimpanzee. And his description of this orang otang or Satyrus indicus, has the same question in mind as all the others before it. Is this a human? Not... Is it like a human, or is it related to humans? The issue was much more direct. Some people who heard about the reports of apes through the centuries figured that they were the misbegotten offspring of humans and monkeys. But more often, they were left wondering if the animals were, in fact, animals, or if they belonged to the separate and more unique order of mankind. In case it needs saying, yes, there was a good bit of racism in this inquiry. 
While the specific brands of racism we know today were still a couple hundred years away from codification, Europeans of Tulp's time were full of disquieting conjectures about the otherness of various groups of people, particularly Native Americans, since they couldn't work out how a race of men descended from Adam could have gotten to the New World after the Great Flood. Maybe they were a different kind of human, both from different origins, somehow. And what of the African bush people, whom Hano might have confused with gorillas, or the Malays that explained the orang-otang to Bontius? Pliny had described a great variety of mythical peoples. There were the pygmies, who warred with birds. There were blemye, who had no necks or heads but kept their faces on their chests. There were the skiopods, who had only one leg with a giant foot that they used to shade themselves from the sun. People, all people agreed, were special and unique among the living things of Earth. But just what made people people was hazy. And maybe, whatever the criteria were, Prince Henry's satirist Indicus made the cut. Nicholas Tulp doesn't directly address the issue, but it is all over the subtext. The face was human-like. The ears were shaped no differently than a human's. The chest, too, was human-like. The limbs were so exactly like a human's that they are practically as similar as one egg to the next. Even the thumb was not lacking human shape. Nearly every sentence of Tulp's physical description is a direct and favorable comparison to humanity. And then he gets on to behavior. When about to drink, he writes, she would grab the pot by the handle with one hand while holding up the vessel from the bottom with the other. Then she would wipe off any moisture from her lips, no less fittingly and daintily than you might see a courtier do. She showed the same dexterity when she would go to bed. She would lay down her head on a pillow and properly cover her body with a blanket and wrap herself up no differently than the gentlest man would lay down for bed. Tulp's insinuation, as far as I'm concerned, was that if this orang-otang wasn't human, it was at least compellingly close. In 1698, Edward Tyson, the father of comparative anatomy who had previously autopsied a porpoise and concluded it was a mammal, dissected a chimpanzee and found that its anatomy was in almost every respect humanoid. Even the brain was essentially the same, if a good deal smaller. But while he admitted that the creature was more like a person than it was like a monkey, he couldn't abide calling it human. He noted that the voice box of the chimp, which he too called orang-otang, was virtually identical to our own, but noted that the specimen, in contrast to Pontius's claim, was incapable of speech. Because, wrote Tyson, it lacked those nobler faculties in the mind of man, it was, he concluded, a brute animal sui generis. But among people who observed living apes, the uncertainty persisted. In 1756, the Dutch naturalist Amut Vosmar was chosen by Princess Anna, the widow of William IV, Prince of Orange, to direct and expand her collection of natural history. She died three years later, but her son, Prince William V, kept Vosmir on. In 1776, Vosmir managed to acquire an orangutan from traders in the Dutch East Indies and brought it to Prince William as a gift. Prince William wrote about her in great detail, with great humanity, you might even say. He described her favorite foods, bread, carrots, strawberries, her favorite drink, wine, naturally, 
She ate with knife and fork, used toothpicks, and, like Prince Henry's chimp, wiped her lips dry by napkin. And, like Prince Henry's chimp, she made her bed every night and tucked herself in. She was incredibly social and clung at every opportunity to the servant girl put in charge of her care. And one time, Prince William wrote, after seeing someone using a key to open her enclosure, she was caught trying to finagle the lock with a small piece of wood. She had, he said, a more-than-animal intelligence. Aside from signs and advertisements for public exhibits, which tended to call apes forest men and the like, the first person to just come right out and say that they were people in print was James Burnett, Lord Monbado. In the 1700s, Lord Monbado, the founder of comparative historical linguistics and a court of session judge in Scotland, got into a tiff with Georges-Louis Leclerc, the Comte de Buffon, precisely over the question of ape personhood. Leclerc argued against, and Burnett answered with a fierce and strong statement, writing that the ape was an animal of the human form, inside as well as out. He has the sentiments and affections common to our species, and likewise an attachment of love and friendship. They live in society and have some arts of life. They appear likewise to have some civility among them, and to practice certain rites, such as that of burying the dead. By the time of Monbado v. Buffon, as you can probably tell, the question had gotten hot. Enlightenment philosophers like Hobbes, Locke, Hume, and Rousseau had taken aim at the uniqueness of humanity. No longer was it assumed that society, learning, and civilization were gifts given by God and the angels to Adam and Eve in the garden. Hobbes imagined a state of nature, where life was nasty, brutish, and short, full of violence and chaos until a monarch took control and imposed order. Locke, conversely, imagined the state of nature as peaceful, moral, and idyllic, but either picture looked quite a lot like how they imagined the civilization of apes. Rousseau was more on the nose, writing that the tailless apes were more similar to one another than they were to monkeys, and men more like some apes than they were to one another. To be sure, the debate could be impassioned and fierce. At issue, after all, was whether God had given what Buffon called the superior principle to something other than mankind. Asking if apes were men was a deep and troubling philosophical and theological concern. But there was a more outrageous way to pose the query, it turned out. A phrasing that really upset people. Are apes men was nothing, because in late 1859, Charles Darwin insinuated another question with the publication of On the Origin of Species. Forget Are Apes Men? The book seemed to ask, Are Men Apes? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. I'm going to level with you. I had not planned on making this episode. I'd planned on telling a relatively simple story, a mystery story, actually, about science and fraud and prejudice and rivalry, good stuff like that. But then I thought, well, to properly appreciate that story, we're going to need some background. And to appreciate the background, we're going to need some more background, which will take even more background and more background and more and more and more. What's more, I also realized that a lot of the background brushed up against stories and ideas I've wanted to talk about for a long time, and that if I passed them by now, I might not get back to them until who knows when. 
In essence, what was originally supposed to be a little cold open is now looking like two whole episodes, which will then lead us back to my original topic. And then, depending on how sick you and I both are of hearing about this stuff, I may double back and talk about some more stuff, because this subject branches out in so many directions, it begins to look like the whole tree of life. Which is precisely what it's about. Evolution. This week, we are going to look a bit at what happened before and immediately after the publication of maybe the most important book ever written on the origin of species, with a particular focus on how people digested or failed to digest its ramifications on what it meant to be human. Then in two weeks, we'll talk about what happened after Darwin, when most of the scientific world rejected his most important insights and concocted a bevy of new theories to explain the nature of life on Earth. Cool? Cool. I'm calling this series Link Missing, which makes this Link Missing Part 1. I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Two years after Charles Darwin re-arrived in London from his five-year-long voyage aboard the HMS Beagle, he paid a visit to the London Zoological Gardens. By then, he was already well on his way to the theory of natural selection that would become his namesake. The birds he had brought back from the Galapagos, he learned from ornithologist John Gould, were not just types of blackbirds and finches and wrens, but entirely distinct and original species. And he had started to map out the locations where he had found them, and discovered a sort of taxonomical chain of custody, whereby the birds seemed to move east from the South American coast, changing gradually from species to species as you went from one island to the next. In his diary, he mused about the possibility of one species changing into another, and in his notebooks, he sketched out branching trees of life. But he was more than 20 years away from publishing his theory, which was still, to some degree or another, in a nascent form. 
just how much his visit to the zoo in March of 1838 influenced the development of that theory is a question that has been debated by scholars ever since. What's not in question is that at the zoo, he met Jenny, and that Jenny left a deep impact on the man himself. Jenny, you see, was an orangutan, and as he watched her, he was dumbstruck by just how human she seemed. The keeper showed her an apple, he wrote in a letter to his sister, but would not give it her, whereupon she threw herself on her back, kicked and cried precisely like a naughty child. She then looked very sulky, and after two or three fits of passion, the keeper said, Jenny, if you will stop bawling and be a good girl, I will give you the apple. She certainly understood every word of this, and though like a child she had great work to stop whining, she at last succeeded and then got the apple, with which she jumped into an armchair and began eating it with the most contented countenance imaginable. Darwin came back to see Jenny throughout the year, studying her attitude, her body language, her facial expressions, her moods, and her intelligence. He watched her obey instructions, open doors, and groom herself with a hairbrush. He watched her cling lovingly to her favorite keepers and regard other animals jealously when they received their attention. He wrote in one of his notebooks, Let man visit orangutan in domestication, hear expressive whine, see its intelligence when spoken to, as if it understands every word said, see its affection to those it knew, see its passion and rage, sulkiness, and very actions of despair, and then let him boast of his proud preeminence. Man, in his ignorance, thinks himself a great work, worthy the interposition of a deity, more humble, and I believe true, to consider him created from animals. Just as scholars have argued about the importance of Jenny on Darwin's theory, they've also argued and continue to argue about the importance of the theory itself. Cut down to its roots, Origin of Species makes essentially two arguments. One, that species evolve from one another, and two, that that evolution is governed by natural selection, that survival pressures favor certain traits in certain populations which gradually move them apart from one another genetically until they are no longer of the same species. But in 1859, the first argument was by no means novel, and the second one was far from convincing. The flaws in natural selection we've already talked about at length in the episodes Let's Talk About Sex, Babies, and more recently in The Greater Good, and probably a few other times I'm forgetting to... <laughs> In short, while time eventually proved Darwin's theory of natural selection remarkably right, at the time he presented it, it made next to no sense. Darwin didn't understand how conception worked, let alone heritability, and his attempts to put together a theory for how life could mutate were pretty darn lousy, and all manner of theologians, biologists, archaeologists, and others quickly tore them to shreds. There was a correct theory of heredity out there, and it fit neatly with Darwin's theory. But when the Augustinian friar Gregor Mendel had presented it, nobody had noticed, and it would take until the early 1900s for people to find it again. Until then, the selection part of Darwin's work stood on incredibly shaky ground, and many people jettisoned it with prejudice. Evolution, on the other hand, was a different matter. 
Ever since natural philosophers had begrudgingly admitted that fossils must take their shape from plants and animals that had been encased in rock, a debate we talked about in the episode It's a Date, the idea of evolution had been sort of sitting there looking everyone in the face. It became evident that a lot of the plants and animals found in deeper fossils were nowhere to be seen in the present, and plenty of the species currently inhabiting the Earth were entirely missing from the past. Whether in some way the old had transmuted into the new was a natural line of questioning, stymied mainly by religious orthodoxy plus a little failure of imagination here and again. Still, the mumblings had begun early and they'd only gotten louder over the centuries. In his fight with Buffon over the personhood of apes, Lord Monbado had come pretty close to suggesting some kind of evolution. Charles's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, had toyed with the idea extensively. In 1809, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck had published Philosophie Zoologique, a whole and holistic theory of animal transmutation, based famously on the inheritance of acquired characteristics, which had been largely rejected by the time Darwin was writing, but which people flocked back to after Darwin. So we'll finally, finally talk about Lamarckism in part two. In 1844, the Scottish geologist and writer Robert Chambers had anonymously published Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation, which posited that everything in the universe descended from earlier and more primitive forms, from the solar system to the Earth and all the life upon it. But Darwin's take on evolution was different. For starters, it was clear, compelling, persuasive, and thorough. It was also different from most of the earlier takes on evolution, like Lamarck's and Chambers, in two important ways. It didn't privilege humans, and it didn't privilege God. Earlier evolutionary theorists had been quick to credit a deity with the transmutation of life. In Lamarck's version, God played the role that fucking Aristotle had laid out for him more than 2,000 years earlier. The deity was an unmoved mover who created the world, gave it its laws and shapes, and sent it on its way. This was a bit heretical, sure, but it lined up with the beliefs of the deists, and with just a little nudging, one could say that though God did nothing, through him all things were done. His plan, from the moment of creation, was being followed, as expected, predestination style. Chambers was more explicit in his theology. The thing that transmuted one species to another wasn't some sort of inheritance acquired or innate, but God himself, who had a hand constantly upon the wheel, aiming life from its simplest origins to its ultimate goal, mankind. Now there was a bigger issue. Whether Lamarck, Chambers, Lord Mombato, or even Erasmus Darwin, pretty much every evolutionist before Charles saw the process as teleological, as goal-oriented. There was, it was understood from Aristotle, a great chain of being, a pyramid of life, and humanity stood upon its tip. It was no problem that people showed up so late in the fossil record. That only made sense. Getting to people had been the destination all along, and now we were there. And here, you, you get what I mean. Darwin cast off both of these notions. There was no need for a divine guiding hand, either at the beginning of the journey or throughout it. And that journey had no premeditated plan. Evolution didn't aspire to anything other than survival and propagation. People were around because people could eat and protect themselves and raise babies. 
everything else, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Fifth, even his own theory, were incidental. Cream. So, you might expect and have probably been told that Origin of Species ignited a firestorm of controversy. But that isn't quite true. In his notes and drafts, Darwin had made several stabbing attempts at including a chapter or more about the origins of humans, but in the end he omitted that section, allowing keen readers to put it together through inference. And infer they did! Critics almost immediately recognized what they saw as the danger in Darwin's book. It lowered humanity to the level of base animals. It introduced a mechanism for life that didn't require a god, and it didn't just challenge the biblical account of creation, it completely blew past it without the slightest bit of consideration. The relationship between 19th century science and 19th century Christianity was already heavily strained, and plenty of religious thinkers feared that this would be the final straw. And, well, <laughs> I mean, they were kind of right. It didn't take long for their fears to feel validated. Four months after Origin of Species, another book came out that made a much bigger and more concerning splash. The title was about as tame as a title could be, but the insides were anything but. It was called Essays and Reviews. To understand where essays and reviews came from and why it created such an uproar, we've got to take a look at the state of religion in England going into the 1860s. In the 1700s, the Anglican Church was somewhat ceremonial, and most of its priests were part-timers and title holders, country gentlemen who just happened to be priests, but held few services, wore few vestments, and just generally did very little priesting. But alternatives to Anglicanism were once again appearing, particularly Methodism. The English Methodists called themselves serious Christians, and their clerics serious pastors, with an obvious stinky side glance to the blasé, barely practicing Anglicans. At the same time, the Oxford movement, otherwise known as Tractarianism, was growing mostly among the learned priests and theologists of... Oxford, arguing for a more formal, dedicated priesthood closer aligned to the Catholic Church. Both of these forces exerted pressure upon the Church of England, and in the first few decades of the 19th century, the position of Anglican priest had gone from being something of an adjective, a feather in the cap for English gentlemen who mostly engaged in other, more worldly pursuits like science and business, to being a full-on, life-consuming vocation. They gave two sermons on Sundays and held weekday services, too. They visited their congregants, particularly the poor and the sick. They started wearing all black and abstaining from popular hobbies like going to the theater or hunting foxes. By the time essays and reviews came out, most were even wearing collars in their day-to-day -day lives. But these were all outward signs. The real change was occurring in the inner lives, hearts, and minds of the clergy. Like so many professions in the 19th century, they were becoming specialists. They studied science and literature and philosophy less. And in the place of those things came a dedication to theology and apologetics. In a sense, 
many Anglican clerics were turning their backs on the real and physical world, withdrawing into a spiritual universe distinct both from the flesh and blood lives of the laity and from the natural philosophers who were busy trying to understand the nature of the universe. In the 1700s and before, science, or what we would now call science at least, had been largely aligned with religion. There was a broadly held belief that any discovery or invention humanity could make would only deepen the understanding of scripture. But keeping science, philosophy, and religion on the same page only grew harder and harder with more dissident views and heretical ideas popping up every year. And at the same time, the priests, who until the 1800s had been the scientists and philosophers, were bowing out of the game. Instead, a tradition that had long investigated and interrogated doubt began simply to deny it. Best not to talk about that was like an unofficial liturgy at the Anglican Church, put nearly directly by the Bishop of Oxford, who wrote, Whilst irreverence and doubt are the object of your greatest fear, whilst you would gladly retain a childlike and unquestioning reverence by abasing, if need were, your understanding, rather than gain any knowledge at the hazard of your reverence, you are doubtless in God's hands, and therefore safe. Fly, therefore, rather than contend. Fly to known truths. Man, that is a distressing lesson. <laughs> Ooh, it's better to be ignorant than irreverent. I can't afford the spike in blood pressure that sentiment causes in me. So I'm happy to say that the Bishop of Oxford who expressed it is one of the main villains of our story and that he's going to get his comeuppance pretty soon. His name was Samuel Wilberforce, but he was better known as Soapy Sam. Just where that name came from was a matter of conjecture even within Wilberforce's lifetime. Some said it came from a childhood habit of washing his hands too much. Others said it was even more innocent than that. That when Wilberforce opened a theological college at Cudston, the gates happened to be inscribed with the initials of the college's founders, Samuel Oxen and Alfred Pott. S-O-A-P. The Irish diplomat Lord Strangford said it merely meant, quote, that the bishop, though often in hot water, always came out of it with clean hands. And that is the version that Soapy Sam himself said was the truth. But Soapy Sam was Soapy Sam, and I don't trust him one whit. The best bet is that Soapy was first so-called by his brothers when he was a little kid, not because he was always washing his hands, but because he was so thoughtful and well-spoken and graceful and polite, and that it was, they thought, all a slippery act. Indeed, their assessment appears to have been correct. After his death, Wilberforce's son, Reginald, published a biography of Soapy Sam along with Canon A.R. Ashwell. Reginald's part of the book included long sections from Sam's personal diary, which showed that he had a near-endless acid hate for most of the people around him, always well covered up by his politic manners. Arguably, no one was more responsible for unifying the evangelicals and the Tractarians into the Anglican Church than Soapy Sam, and that meant championing an orthodoxy of revered ignorance. And it was Bishop Wilberforce who saw the most danger in the 1860 book, Essays and Reviews. 
There were a good number of Anglican priests, some of them prominent ones, who didn't like the blind barrel-ahead version of Christianity that Soapy had helped take over the church by the mid-19th century. And there were seven of them, in particular, who decided it was time to speak up. They each published an article in Essays and Reviews, and each of the articles was more blasphemous than the last. Frederick Temple, who would later rise to become the Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote about the need for intellectual freedom when studying the Bible. Rowland Williams, a tutor at Cambridge, wrote a broadside criticism of the accuracy of prophecy in the Old Testament. Uh Uh-oh. Baden-Powell, professor of geometry at Oxford, wrote that miracles were impossible and irrational. Charles Wycliffe Goodwin urged people to stop trying to square geology with Genesis and just admit that the first book of the Bible wasn't true. And Benjamin Jowett, professor of Greek at Oxford, suggested that the whole Bible, not just Genesis, be read and studied as if it were just another book. Essays and Reviews became a bestseller at an enormous scale. To give you a sense of it, consider Origin of Species, which was itself a smash hit and, you might have noticed, a tad bit influential too. In the first two years, it sold around 5,500 copies. In that same time, Essays and Reviews sold 22,000. In no small part, the success of Essays and Reviews was due to a number of high-profile essays and reviews written about Essays and Reviews, the most prominent of which was a long and detailed criticism planted in the Quarterly Review. The review came perilously close to outright accusing the authors of heresy and even atheism, but manages to come just short of actually calling for their excommunication full out. It doesn't do much work contesting the views and arguments expressed in the book, mainly concentrating on a general sense of opprobrium that anyone, let alone a bunch of Anglican priests and prominent academics, would have forwarded them in the first place. It manages to appear as if it's being even-handed and polite, but in actuality it's full-on fulminating hate bubbling beneath the surface. Lord Westbury described the review in the House of Lords as a well-lubricated set of words, a sentence so oily and saponaceous that no one can grasp it. In other words, Soapy. Soapy Sam was the man behind the attack on essays and reviews. He'd hoped, it seems, that he could use an anonymous essay in Quarterly Review to rally the clergy behind him and inspire them to destroy the authors he loathed. And it... mmm... sort of worked. The Archbishop of Canterbury and 25 of his underling bishops followed the lead, calling for the writers of essays and reviews to be brought up on charges of heresy. Despite the assertion in his article that all authors of the essays were equally guilty, Soapy Sam only succeeded in getting charges brought up for two of them, Roland Williams, who said the prophecies in the Old Testament didn't work, and Henry Bristol Wilson, who questioned, among other things, whether souls damned to hell stayed there. Both men were found guilty of heresy, but appealed to the highest court, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. Because the judges of that committee were mostly secular jurists, they overturned the lower court, but two of the clerical members, the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, dissented. Soon after, Soapy Sam used the outrage of their acquittal to secure an official condemnation of essays and reviews by the Anglican Church. 
But what does any of this have to do with Darwinism, you might be wondering? Well, good old soapy Sam Wilberforce knew. He'd been acutely aware of the threat of evolutionism since Robert Chambers' Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation. Vestiges might have been tinged with religious ideas, but it wasn't nearly so tinged enough for old soapy Sam. He gave a sermon on the subject in which he essentially shouted down, insulted, and threatened those who would give quarter to the book's heretical ideas. It was seen as an important refutation by the church, blunting the success of the theory. But now it was back again, in the form of On the Origin of Species, even more corrosive and convincing than it had been previously. Wilberforce wrote a scathing review of Darwin's book, even as he praised the writing and evidence. Nevertheless, he attacked Darwin's arguments with all the vigor he could muster. And Soapy Sam was no slouch when it came to vigorous argument. Considered among the greatest speakers then living in the English-speaking world, Bishop Wilberforce was no idiot. But he deployed his considerable intellect, as already shown, in the defense of ignorance. And that very much harmed his first attempt to defang Darwin. And when, four months later, Essays and Reviews was published, Soapy Sam knew what the book was really about. The ideas of Darwin had infected the clergyman who wrote it. And he wasn't wrong, either. In Baden-Powell's essay Against the Existence of Miracles, he'd made the influence explicit, writing, Mr. Darwin's masterly volume must soon bring about an entire revolution in opinion in favor of the grand principle of the self-evolving powers of nature. To Samuel Wilberforce, Essays and Reviews wasn't just a dangerous book in and of itself. It was a sign that his concerns about evolution were spot on, that the theory would lead to the downfall of high Christianity if left unchecked. And Bishop Soapy Sam Wilberforce was willing to stake his reputation to make sure that didn't happen in one famous day that would come to overshadow the rest of his career. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine. 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. If Bishop Soapy Sam Wilberforce is the villain of this story, and he's not, he's just a villain of this story, then Thomas Henry Huxley is its hero. And he's got the right backstory for the job. Huxley's dad was a math teacher at Great Ealing School in London, a job that had previously been held by French king-to-be Louis-Philippe when he was in exile. But, according to the biography written by his son Leonard, Huxley's father lost the position when he was 10 years old, possibly because the school itself had to relocate due to dry rot. Without his father's income and connection to an institute of learning, Thomas had to drop out of school, and from then on he was mostly self-taught. And it turned out... One hell of a self-teacher. He mastered several languages, logic, geology, anatomy, biology, and theology. Eventually, he impressed enough people to be apprenticed in medicine before being accepted to study at Charing Cross Hospital. He excelled there, but ran short of money and had to leave without his degree, instead joining the Royal Navy. He was brought onto the HMS Rattlesnake, awesome name, with the official title of Surgeon's Mate. In practice, he did less medicine than he did biology, studying all manner of marine life around Australia and New Guinea. He sent his research back to London, where it so impressed the Royal Society that when he returned, they made him a fellow immediately. He managed to teach and study as a full professor at no less than four universities. Most of his academic work throughout his life had to do with fish and other marine animals, and it's some of the most influential research of his century, but... Then again, Bishop Samuel Wilberforce was considered among the most influential Anglicans of the 19th century, too, and that is not what he's remembered for. And like Soapy Sam, Thomas Henry Huxley is better recalled by his nickname, Darwin's Bulldog. In his studies, T.H. Huxley had come across the idea of evolution, which at the time was better known as transmutation theory, or development theory, and he was not impressed. He'd read Lamarck's philosophy zoologique and thought it didn't hang together. When Richard Chambers published his Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation, Huxley wrote an absolutely brutal review of it. It opens with a quote from Macbeth, time was that when the brains were out, the man would die. So too time was, Huxley said, that when a book had been shown to be a mass of pretentious nonsense, it too quietly sunk into its proper limbo, but these days appear unhappily to have gone by. When Bishop Wilberforce anonymously tried to get the priests behind essays and reviews excommunicated, he wore a veneer of conviviality and gentleness about his writing. When Huxley took on Chambers, he went straight for the throat. It would be no less wearisome than unprofitable he wrote, to go into a detailed examination of all the blunders and misstatements of the vestiges, to drag to light all the suggestions of the false and suppressions of the true which abound in almost every page, and which, in a work of such pretension, of such long elaboration, and so filled with whining assertions of sincerity, are almost as culpable if they proceed from ignorance as if they were the result of intention. It just goes on like that for paragraph after paragraph, like dozens of paragraphs. 
Evolution, Huxley thought, was bullshit. He thought it so hard that in 1855 he gave a speech at the proceedings of the Royal Institution savaging every last element of the idea and every last person who had advanced it. So naturally, after attending that speech, Charles Darwin decided to let Huxley in on a little book he was working on. Why Darwin chose Huxley, of all people to confide in, is beyond me. Maybe Huxley was such an impressive and honest thinker that Darwin felt instinctively that he'd change his tune if presented with the evidence. And if that was the thinking, Darwin was right again. By 1858, Huxley was singing a new song, and singing it loudly with the zeal of a convert. When Origin of Species hit the shelves in 1859, Huxley penned one of the first and most glowing of reviews for it. His fawning for Darwin was every bit as thick as his loathing had been for Chambers. But longer lasting, since he didn't stop at just one article, he wrote more and more, and finally arranged a lecture at the Royal Institution, where five years before, he had lambasted evolution as nonsense. Now he called it undeniable. My reflection, when I first made myself master of the central idea of the origin, he later wrote, was, how extremely stupid of me not to have thought of that. He described Soapy Sam's review as, high and mighty talk which would have been indecent in one of Mr. Darwin's equals proceeds from a writer whose want of intelligence, or of conscience, or of both, is so great that by way of an objection to Mr. Darwin's views, he can ask, is it credible that all favorable varieties of turnips are tending to become men? Of course, Sam, as Soapy as always, had published the review anonymously, so Huxley might not have known whom he was addressing, but when they were finally face-to-face, -face, he still didn't pull any punches. It was Saturday, June 30th, 1860, at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History. Two days earlier, the British Association for the Advancement of Science had welcomed an English botanist named Charles Daubeny to read a paper entitled On the Final Causes of the Sexuality of Plants, So Far So Good, with particular reference to Mr. Darwin's work. Uh-oh! When Daubeny was done speaking, a debate broke out over Mr. Darwin's work. We'll get back to that. And the next day, Bishop Samuel Wilberforce agreed to address the association to finally put this evolution bunkum to bed once and for all. Huxley was there, in case it needs saying, but he had planned to take off before Wilberforce's show. He was convinced to stay by, of all people, Richard Chambers, whose vestiges he'd lashed so hard before. Chambers told Huxley that the Darwinists needed him, their strongest advocate, to counter Soapy Sam. And Huxley relented. On Saturday evening, Dr. John Draper, an American professor from NYU visiting England, read a guest paper entitled, On the Intellectual Development of Europe, So Far So Good, considered with reference to the views of Mr. Darwin and others that the progression of organisms is determined by law. Uh-oh again. But this time, the problem was that Draper's paper was as long as it was boring, and the whole of British scientific society was gathered, waiting for him to be done so that Wilberforce could start up. When finally, finally, 
Draper concluded, the moderator asked four questions, and three men came forward ahead of Wilberforce, only for one of them to be shouted down by the crowd, who were sick and tired of waiting for the fireworks. Then, at long last, it was time for Soapy Sam and Darwin's Bulldog to go at it. Now, there is, ironically, a lot of debate about how exactly the 1860 Oxford evolution debate went down. Like, a lot of debate. In the last couple of decades, at least a dozen historians, scientists, and authors have written up reevaluations of the event, trying to get to the root of what precisely happened. There were no minutes taken, let alone transcripts, so everything we know comes down to letters, diaries, and articles written after the fact, some of them long after the fact, and few of them by anyone who might even possibly be considered impartial. For instance, Sam Wilberforce himself wrote a letter to Sir Charles Henry John Anderson. Four names and not a single one of them interesting? Seriously? Couldn't throw a Xander or an Ephraim into the middle there? Sorry. Wilberforce wrote Anderson just days after the debate saying, Professor Henslow called on me by name to address the section on Darwin's theory, so I could not escape and had quite a long fight with Huxley. I think I thoroughly beat him. Contrastly, Huxley wrote to his friend, Frederick Daniel Deister, to say that he had won and was, quote, the most popular man in Oxford for a full four and twenty hours afterwards. Joseph Hooker wrote to his close friend, Darwin, to concur that Wilberforce had lost, but in his telling, it was thanks to Hooker himself, who came to Huxley's beleaguered rescue after he was unable to, quote, throw his voice over so large an assembly, nor command the audience. Still, other near-contemporaneous reports suggest that there wasn't much of a fight at all, and that when the debate concluded, everybody went out drinking together. However the debate actually shook out in the moment, it soon grew to have a life of its own. It became a hallmark, a legend, the day that science beat religion. Within a few months, there was a spoof of the debate on stage in which Huxley firmly demolished Soapy Sam. The event was written about and summarized over and over in increasingly heroic tones. And while remembrances of the debate were most certainly and greatly exaggerated, I think it is safe to say that Huxley probably did, in fact, win it. Not only was that the main takeaway given by most of the witnesses, but after June 30th, 1860, Soapy Sam Wilberforce, the most prominent enemy of Darwin's theory, disappeared from the discussion like a fart in the wind. He barely ever raised his voice again about the subject of evolution. And that makes sense, because the one exchange that did make it into history didn't exactly go Wilberforce's way. Now, it could be that this was never said at all, although that seems unlikely. How exactly it occurred is more nebulous. But if you've ever heard about the 1860 Oxford evolution debate, then this exchange is probably the only thing you know about it. The exact wording of the line varies from telling to telling, as does the response, which is typically very wordy in the way that 19th century British debaters tended to be. But in essence, Bishop Soapy Sam Wilberforce asked Huxley whether, quote-ish, it was through his grandfather or his grandmother that he claimed descent from a monkey. Pretty low-down remark from the supposedly high-minded bishop. And Huxley responded that he would rather have a miserable ape for a grandfather than a less quotish, a liar like you. So yes, 
I think it's probably safe to assume that Huxley did win the day, but it's also safe to assume that Samuel Wilberforce put up a better fight than you'd anticipate from a guy whose entire philosophical stance was, it's better if I don't know anything about this. The regularly anti-science Wilberforce showed up at Oxford more prepared to talk about science than usual, because he was being coached by the true villain of the story, Richard Owen. Richard Owen was arguably the most prominent biologist in England at the time of the Oxford debate. Best known today for coining the word dinosaur, terrible lizards which he was among the first to catalog and the first to build life-sized models of. He was an exceedingly able anatomist and investigator of both fossilized and fresh remains, so much so that when Charles Darwin came back to London after his voyage on the Beagle, his friend Charles Lyell introduced him to Owen immediately, and Darwin gave most of the fossils he'd collected on his journey to Owen for examination. From them, Owen identified a number of extinct giant sloth species and a hippo-sized rodent he called Toxodon. Not only was Owen an indebted colleague of Darwin, but he had nothing principally against the concept of transmutation either, not as far as anyone can tell at least. In fact, he had come up with his own evolutionary theory back in the 1840s, though after the reaction to Chambers' vestiges, he kept his pretty quiet. He'd given a speech at the Royal Institution back in 1849 called On the Nature of Limbs, in which he showed that all vertebrate limbs shared common features, and his research into extinct fossils showed that different species with still similar limbs had existed in the past. He presumed that there was some sort of transmutation from earlier to later animals, but in his estimation, there had to have been many kinds of animals to begin with, all working towards an ideal type. It was an expressly religious viewpoint, and to Owen, whatever precisely the laws were that governed evolution, those laws were God's laws. Moreover, he knew one thing for certain. Neither his grandfather nor his grandmother had been monkeys. Like Huxley, Owen was granted an early copy of Origin of Species by Darwin, who hoped his friend would provide him notes on the book. Owen ostensibly obliged, but in actuality, he suggested edits that he thought would hurt the book. And when it came out, Owen pounced, writing one of the first, most prominent, and most negative reviews of Origin, in which he specifically criticized many of the things he had told Darwin to include. But that was just the start of things. As Darwin was working on Origin in the late 1850s, Owen was seemingly spooked and definitely outraged. He couldn't accept that humans shared a lineage with apes, and he began searching for proof that they didn't. He understood that anatomically, the similarities seemed profound. But after much searching, he believed he had found the difference. Three differences, actually, but all of them had to do with the brain. The posterior lobe of the human brain extended past the cerebellum to a greater degree than in other primates, he said. But more important were two small areas of the brain that were present in humans, but, according to Owen, totally absent from monkeys and apes. Areas he called the posterior horn and the hippocampus minor. 
These three features in concert, Owen said, were how man, quote, fulfills his destiny as the supreme master of this earth and of the lower creation. And just as critically, Owen said it was impossible for these things to have developed via evolution. Owen made this claim repeatedly. He made it in papers. He made it in speeches. He drew diagrams and presented illustrations. And it stuck right in Thomas Henry Huxley's craw. Huxley had disliked Owen from the jump. He found him condescending, pretentious, and too deferential to old-fashioned ideas and social hierarchies. But the second he heard about Owen's hippocampus minor, he could smell the bullshit on the air. He immediately began doing his own research, poring over anatomy books and journals. Also, he dissected a lot of monkeys. As he worked on his rebuttal, Huxley also started taking stabs at other of Owen's ideas. In one speech he delivered in 1858, Huxley went after seven separate findings, including Owen's theory of archetypes, which he called fundamentally opposed to the spirit of modern science. When he delivered the speech at the Royal Institution, Owen was in the audience. Ooh. Yet, Owen was less upset about that than he was that positive reviews of Origin of Species failed to properly praise him for his theory, which at this point had itself ironically evolved. Owen now said that animals speciated in single gigantic leaps. When it was time for a species to transmute into its next form, closer to its ultimate archetype, the mother of that species would spontaneously give birth to the next, by order of God. He called this notion ordained becoming. By the time Origin released and Huxley's review riled Owen, Huxley was nearly ready to strike. In his studies of ape, monkey, and human brains, he'd seen plenty of differences in size and shape, but all of them had posterior horns, all of their posterior lobes extended past their cerebellums, and all of them possessed hippocampuses minor. It was, Huxley thought, obvious. Too obvious for Owen not to have seen. He may have been obnoxious and narcissistic, but he wasn't an idiot. No, he had to be lying on purpose. Huxley determined not just to discredit Owen, but to convict him of perjury. He wrote to Darwin about him, saying, and this quote, this is a very good quote, before I have done with that mendacious humbug, I will nail him out like a kite to a barn door, an example to all evildoers. To which Darwin more gently replied, Oh Lord, what a thorn you must be in the poor dear man's side. <laughs> Darwin's so sweet. He first signaled his attack in 1859, responding to Owen informally by saying that he didn't see anything worse about humans coming from apes than coming from a mound of dirt, as the biblical view supposed. But, he said slash warned, this wasn't the time to get into a technical argument. That time would be at Oxford on June 28, 1860, two days before his debate with Soapy Sam. After Charles Daubeny read his paper, which was entitled, oh, you remember, right? That catchy-ass title? Say it with me. On the final causes of the sexuality of plants, so far so good, with particular reference to Mr. Darwin's work. That's the one. After Daubeny was done, Richard Owen rose to respond. And though the subject had been plant sex, he used his response time to again say that humans weren't related to apes on account of the hippocampus minor. This, he said, rendered Darwinism impossible. 
It was Huxley's time to pounce. He rose to respond to Owen and flatly contradicted the entirety of his remarks. In the moment, he cited several studies that indicated the presence of the hippocampus minor in apes, but he made a promise before he was done that he would soon publish a full rebuttal to Owen for all to read. Presumably, Huxley meant to have said rebuttal finished soon, but after the Oxford debate, his eldest son, Noel, fell sick with scarlet fever and died. The tragedy only made Huxley angrier, and he threw himself into his article with redoubled venom. It came out in Natural History Review in January of 1861, and if Owen wasn't nervous in the run-up, he ought to have been. Huxley had done his homework, and then wrote a year's worth of extra credit just for fun. He not only had his own research and illustrations, but had assembled a host of quotes and letters from other anatomists who agreed on the presence of the hippocampus minor in apes. And as he had promised Darwin, he argued that this was more than a simple mistake or misapprehension, that Owen had purposely put forward and defended a lie. Things were about to get real. That's dated. Is that dated? Do we say things get real? I should note here that what was actually at play between Huxley and Owen was a narrow strip of land. The question, posed in its literal and minimal form, was simply whether the brains of apes, like chimpanzees and the recently discovered gorilla, were more like those of monkeys or humans. If we want to get pedantic about things, and don't we, we could say that the whole debate was fallacious, or at least subjective. And even if one could definitively say one way or the other, no conclusion inevitably flowed from there. Owen said the ape brain was more like a monkey's, and that therefore it could not share a common ancestor with humanity. Huxley, on the other hand, said it was more like a human's, and must therefore share that ancestor. But neither of those positions makes sense in a vacuum. If apes truly didn't possess a hippocampus minor, why would that preclude humans from evolving that tiny bit of brain matter after we branched off from our last common ancestor with the other apes? And the same goes the other way. If, in fact, gorilla brains were much like people's, why couldn't that be coincidence in the same way that creationists chalked up so many other similarities between species? Regardless, this was the hill that Owen had chosen, and this was the hill he was going to die on. It took him just a month to fire back at Huxley, which he did somehow both bombastically and timidly at once. He invited Paul de Chalou, the French explorer who had recently returned from Africa with the first physical proof of the existence of gorillas, to come speak at the Royal Geographical Society, a showy move he surely hoped would win him credibility by proxy. But when he actually opened his mouth to defend his position after de Chalou's presentation, he weakened it. He wasn't saying that the hippocampus minor only existed in humans. He was merely saying that only humans had a hippocampus minor like humans have a hippocampus minor. Huh? Well, that's the problem with Owen. He makes no sense. He was a brilliant scientist for sure, but over and over throughout his career, when it came time for him to clearly state his position, no one could make hide nor hair of what that position was. Was he a creationist? An evolutionist? Something in between? Who can tell? And why not? Was he just extraordinarily bad at expressing himself? Or was he expressing himself badly on purpose 
to protect his ass. Owen published this lecture, titled with the kind of casual racism only the 19th century could provide, The Gorilla and the Negro, on March 23, 1861, in the Athenaeum magazine. The next week, Huxley sent his response to the Athenaeum. Not only were Owen's arguments all wrong, but his illustrations, printed in the magazine, were too. The drawings included a brain that was unspecified, but made the reader think it belonged to a gorilla. It didn't. And it's clear that Huxley thought that this was another deliberate deception from Owen. In terms of the actual article part of the article, Huxley got fully combative. Quote, I cannot bring myself to believe, as your abstract would lead me to, that the lecturer abstained from mentioning the notorious facts that Tiedman, Cuvier, Gradovay, Vrolik, and all other original observers, including Professor Owen himself in the third volume of the Hunterian Catalogue, have unanimously ascribed a posterior central lobe to the higher apes, that Cuvier has made the possession of such a posterior cerebral lobe part of his definition of the order Quadramana in the rogue animal, and finally, that those anatomists who have most carefully examined the interior structure of the brains of the highest apes have not only asserted the existence of the posterior cornu of the lateral ventricle, but also of a more or less distinct true hippocampus minor in them. Doubtless, Professor Owen, following the course which would be taken by most men of science under such circumstances, allowed the full weight to the affirmation of these eminent persons and stated them fairly, pointing out afterwards how they had been so misled as not only to describe but to figure structures which had no existence. And I am sure that every earnest student will share my regret that whoever drew up the abstract should have omitted this, the most weighty part of the whole discourse. <laughs> That's so much sarcasm in two paragraphs. In Owen's response to Huxley's response to his paper, he blamed an unnamed artist for the errors in the illustration. As for the substantive changes, he referred Huxley back to his 1858 paper, the very one Huxley had destroyed in January. The next week, Huxley responded to Owen's response to his response, and man, did he tear Owen apart. He opened by saying... Professor Owen's admission of his responsibility for the very serious errors respecting matters of anatomical fact contained in the report of a lecture published in number 1743 of the Athenaeum obliges me to trouble you with further, and so far as I am concerned, final remarks upon a subject hardly fitted for full discussion in your paper. He then goes on to, again, debunk Owen. The illustration in Owen's original argument showing a chimp brain without the unique features he ascribed to mankind was taken from one made by a pair of Dutch anatomists who, in their original picture, noted that the brain was deteriorating and saggy, and so accurate shapes and sizes could not be drawn. He pointed out roughly a dozen anatomists from all across Europe, including those working before this tiff had begun, who affirmed the existence of all those features. He went into his own research, assiduously and technically conveyed, which proved once and for all that the brains of gorillas and chimps contained all the same areas as those of humans. Finally, he accused Owen of purposely mistranslating one of the Dutch anatomists who provided the chimp brain illustration, Schroeder van der Kolk, to make it seem as if he said that orangutans had no hippocampus minor, when in truth he'd said nothing of the sort. 
In taking leave of this discussion, Huxley concluded, I may be permitted to add that I shall hereafter deem it unnecessary to take cognizance of assertions opposed to my own knowledge in the concurrent testimony of all the other original observers and already publicly and formally refuted. Life is too short to occupy oneself with the slaying of the slain more than once. Damn, Thomas Henry Huxley. Well, surely that's the end of that, right? No, no. Just to twist the knife a little further, Huxley published an article by George Ralston, the chaired professor of anatomy at Oxford. Ralston had autopsied the brain of an orangutan and showed that it contained the hippocampus minor. Owen responded, saying, Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Huxley was somehow even more frustrated than before. In response to Owen's lackluster, well, what is a brain really, after all, defense, he dissected the brain of a spider monkey in full public view and showed the hippocampus minor to the audience. But that wasn't the end either. Owen continued to make his increasingly muddy claims for years to come, and Huxley continued to refute them. And he wasn't alone. As the issue gained notoriety, more and more scientists began going to look for themselves to deduce the truth of the matter. And all of them, to a man, found Huxley correct. It was a never-ending cascade of embarrassment for Richard Owen. The prominent surgeon and zoologist William Henry Flower dissected 16 separate species of primates, including a human, an orangutan, and a whole lot of monkeys. He concluded that not only did all of them possess the legendary hippocampus minor, but that, proportionate to brain size, humans were the smallest. When this didn't stop Owen from continuing saying otherwise, Flower showed up at one of his readings to confront him. Since he had not replied properly to his paper, Flower gave a live demo. He stood to ask a question, was called upon, and began, I happen to have in my pocket a monkey's brain, which he then pulled out to show its hippocampus minor. All of this hoopla did as much to publicize Darwin's theory as Origin of Species had, or more. Huxley and Owen's cantankerous debate became a popular punchline, satirized and described throughout the popular press and even in children's literature of all places. The Water Babies, a fairy tale for a land baby, is a beloved, if deeply problematic, and I'm not using that grading phrase lightly here, children's novel about a chimney sweep named Tom who falls into a river and drowns, only to be turned into a titular water baby, a caddisfly larvae. Tom goes on all kinds of adventures, each of them thinly disguised didactic moral episodes meant to chastise the treatment of the British working class and blah, 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 blah. The point is, when Charles Kingsley wrote The Water Babies in 1862, he also included a lot of allusions to his friend Charles Darwin's new theory, including a section called The Great Hippopotamus Test, in which a doddering professor put them all in spirits, that's put them all in spirits sans the vowels, says, You may think that there are other, more important differences between you and an ape, such as being able to speak and make machines and know right from wrong and say your prayers and other little matters of that kind, but that is a child's fancy, my dear. Nothing is to be depended upon but the great hippopotamus test. If you have a hippopotamus major in your brain, you are no ape, though you have four hands, no feet, and were more apish than the apes of all aperies. 
But if a hippopotamus major is ever discovered in one single ape's brain, nothing will save your great 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 greater greatest grandmother from having been an ape too. Though really, after all, it don't much matter because nobody but men have hippopotamus in their brains. So if a hippopotamus was discovered in an ape's brain, why it would not be one, you know, but something else. The Great Hippopotamus Test was actually kind of a recycling by Kingsley. In 1861, he'd presented a parody of Owen at the annual meeting of the British Association. At that point, the jokes were slightly less child-friendly, a bit more convoluted, and the hippopotamus not yet involved. He called it On the Great Hippocampus Question. Both were hits, and so were the poems and comics and plays about what came to be called, after Kingsley's spoof, the Great Hippocampus Question. Even if Londoners didn't know a posterior lobe from a caudate nucleus, they all knew what the Great Hippocampus Question was, and that Owen had answered it wrong. His power and influence waned where Huxley's grew. Along with it, evolution spread and became increasingly respected. After all, the major critiques of Soapy Sam Wilberforce and Richard Owen had been dealt with. There was no credible way to refute Darwinism with monkey brains or religious pearl clutching. Not that that stopped people from trying. In the easy, shorthand, glossed-over version of history, this is the end of the story. Huxley felled Owen and Wilberforce, and the scientific community bent the knee, acknowledging Darwinism as the one true mechanism for life. But that could not be further from the truth. In actuality, almost no one accepted Darwinism for the next 50 years. For some good reasons, and plenty more bad ones. Instead, the latter part of the 19th and early 20th centuries was like a wild scientific free-for-all, where theories new and old duked it out while Darwinism languished in the corner. Until, at long last, it came roaring back when all the competition had fallen. And that is next time on Link Missing Part 2. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. This show is made possible by listeners like you who support it via Patreon. A special thanks go out to all the new folks who've decided to make the constant a part of their 2023, especially Quinn Mason, William Holleran, Mary McDermott, Fregaria Papillon Idea, that is a pseudonym, Josh Wasuta, Steve Olson, Dominic Palfi, and the enigmatic Joe Stemma. If you would like to join them, navigate on over to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up. For your contribution, you'll get access to new episodes early and ad-free, as well as monthly bonus content. Not to mention the sense of superiority that comes with knowing that you are, frankly, better than other people. Isn't that what we're all looking for? Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the Field Museum which in 1980 hosted a talk by Stephen Jay Gould about his theory of punctuated equilibrium, which was seized upon by creationists who said he had disproved evolution and continue to to this day. This has been The Constant. Telp got together a group of the top doctors and chemists he could find, and with them authored Pharmacopoeia 
Amstel Redemsis. Astel, Astel Redemensis. Astel Remedensis. Astel Redemensis.